you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, uh, that'll be the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at this morning. But how do you find yourself looking at life? When you think of life, how do, how do you find yourself each day waking up and, and looking at your life? You know, each of us have influences that impact how we view life. We've had influences in the past. We have influences that are currently impacting us. And as we continue to live, there are influences that we still yet maybe not know about are going to influence us in the coming days, years, months. You know, every person has different values they place on what is important in life. All of us have different values. What I value uh, may not be something that you value as highly. Uh, and, and vice versa. You know, the question, uh, a question before us this morning is, what is the basis for your value system? What is the basis for your value system? Often many Christians, it seems, develop a dichotomy in their lives. We can very easily uh, form really two aspects to our life. There's, there's this part of us, and if you want to think of it as a calendar, uh, and you think of, you know, I, have, I open up my computer each day and I have my personal calendar. That crosses with some, I put some stuff from our family calendar in there. I have the church calendar the private church calendar, the public church calendar. And by the time I look at my Google, I have like five different colors going on in my, on my calendar. And, and sometimes as Christians, I, I fear that we actually do that with our lives. We have our spiritual calendar and we have our everyday daily life calendar. And we develop this dichotomy in our lives. You know, rarely do, unfortunately, sometimes they intertwine. Often and too often, I know in my life over the years, my daily life calendar sometimes trumps really, if you want to say, a spiritual calendar. What's really I should be doing and what God wants me to be doing. You know, as Christians, we are too often mentally separating our walk with God and our necessary daily routine. We 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 separate the two things. And we know that, and we know often, we as Christians, in many ways, we know that, that these things, it shouldn't be. We shouldn't be dividing these two things. But when we really look at what we value most, oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, they become two different things, two different parts of our lives that unfortunately don't, aren't intertwining. They aren't really one thing. And so today we sit back and we wonder why churches are struggling. In large part, it is because many have, as one commentator put it, compartmentalized their lives. They believe in the truths that the Bible teaches. If I were to raise, ask for a raise of hand that do you believe what the Bible teaches, I'm going to take a guess that 99% of us here this morning as I look out are going to raise their hands and say, yes, I believe what the Bible teaches. They do not deny the commands of God. They do not doubt God's forgiveness. Don't, we do not doubt God's character. However, these truths, practically speaking, end up not meshing with their daily lives. They aren't impacting the decisions that make, we're making on a, daily, on a daily basis. They have tried to live, we've tried living, splitting these into two different parts. And sadly, this impacts 
our relationship with God. It impacts our relationship with others. And it impacts our commitment to the church, our commitment to our relationship with God. See, the issue is that this, this Christian, that we as Christians, it's not what I've described. It's, it's, the problem is not necessarily, really goes farther than just having, trying to have two separate lives. It really comes down to a wrong view of God himself. Or a, a, a replacement. And really, one commentator, Paul Tripp, in his book, Awe, really calls it an awe problem. And as you see, the title of the message this morning is Awestruck, Awe Matters to Our Value System. The level at which you have an awe for God is going to impact what you value in your life. It's going to impact how you view the world. It's going to impact on how you live your life on a daily basis. If I were to ask for an, uh, a definition of the word awe, I'm not going to publicly ask for it, but you can think in your mind, well, how would you define awe? Well, a few ways it's been defined. The term refers to an emotion Combining honor, fear, and respect before someone of superior office or actions. We even see that principle throughout Scripture. It most appropriately, a lot of times, applies most appropriately to God Himself. Another uh, Bible encyclopedia says this, Fear mingled with reverence and wonder. It's a state of mind inspired by something terrible or sublime. And one other says the word stands for man's attitude of reverential fear toward God. This is the characteristic, he goes on to continue, he says this is the characteristic attitude of the pious soul toward God in the Scriptures. It arises from a consciousness of the infinite power, sublimity, and holiness of God, which fills the mind with the fear of the Lord and a dread of violating His law. So based on Scripture and all problem in relation to how we view the world, comes down to not fearing God. It is a failure to live in wonder and amazement at God's character and His works. It is a failure to have a proper attitude toward God's sovereign control over the earth. And it is this idea that Isaiah speaks to in Isaiah 40. And there's a lot of different angles you could look at Isaiah 40. One angle was very well done in one of our Sunday school classes over the last, I don't know when Andy actually touched on this part, but over the last year. Uh, but thinking about this chapter, and, and really verses 1 through 11, which we're going to get to here in a second, a lot of times it's been used in reference to uh, Christ and, and the, the salvation. But I want to look at it from a different perspective. I want to look at it just simply at what is this passage in Isaiah 40 telling us about God? And there's a lot of application that honestly could come from the text this morning. And, and when we think about what God is doing in this psalm, I mean, some of you in your Bibles might even have a heading that the translators put in there and put the greatness of God. What I want us to walk away with this morning is just and an being awestruck about our God. The big idea this morning 
is just simply live constantly in an awe of God. That is the big overarching idea. And we all have a few other st- uh, statements this morning. But really, it's live constantly in, an awe, in awe of God. Just living in awe of God. Because he is wonderful. He's majestic. And this passage helps us see that. And so I want to walk through the passage. Don't worry, it won't take, I, we're not going to walk through every single little verse because there's a lot in this chapter. But I took it in chunks, and there's four principles from this, and then following that, there's two applications that I'll, we'll finish with this morning. But the first thing that I want to see from this is that in verses 1 through 11, we see we need to stand in awe of God for keeping his promises. Look at verse 1. It says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for her God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Jumping down to verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of God, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This passage is filled with the greatness of God in these first few verses. There's a prophetic aspect to this passage. Israel was, if you think about it, the kingdom had been divided at this point. And enemies were around them all the time. <coughs> Israel was not in a good situation. And here Isaiah is writing under the inspiration of God, and God is telling him to comfort the nation of Israel, it, the Israelites, with these truths. And what do we see? The promises that he is keeping, we see in verses 1 through 2, he, there's a deliverance from sin. That her iniquity, her iniquity has been removed. Aren't you thankful for God's forgiveness of sin? See, we should wake up every morning standing in awe of God's forgiveness of your sin, of my sin. We should wake up every morning just in awe of that. There's no one else that can forgive your sin like God forgives your sin. Yes, we can forgive one another, but what does Ephesians 4.32 tell us? We are to forgive others as what? As God has forgiven us. See, when God comes to set up his kingdom and to shepherd his sheep, his powerful arm will rule all people and there will be no warfare anymore. You know, pastors just finished going through Revelation. Just going through that book should bring us to awe (laughs) about who Christ is. 
I want to keep moving through this, but we see there's this deliverance of sin, this forgiveness of sin. One commentator put it this way, God's compassionate forgiveness of Jerusalem will be an act of divine grace that will bring comfort to his people. You know, if we fast forward to, for us today, we think of Romans 12, 1 and 2, and Paul in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, actually gives to us how we ought to respond. And if, if we're responding in awe to God, this is how we will respond. We will be presenting our bodies, verse 1, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Total commitment. Not partial, but total commitment. Because it's the only thing, and I'm paraphrasing this in my own words, it's the only thing that makes sense. The end of verse 1 says, which is your spiritual service of worship. How do we worship God? How do we show God? How do we practically live out this awe of God? It's by living and presenting ourselves a holy, living sacrifice day after day after day. You know, another part of these first few verses that, that stuck out to me about who God is and why we should just stand in awe. Look at the end of verse. Eight. But the word of our God stands forever. When you think of that, and you, I, I think of how often I've been around. I've not kept my every promise. I know you haven't kept every single one of your promises. If you have, please come and let me know how you accomplished that. But because God's word stands forever, as we stand in awe of God's promises, this is not a possibility. This This is truth. This is absolute truth that God's word stands forever. You know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Because God's word stands forever, we can trust it explicitly. We can stand on it firmly. We also see that God's sovereign shepherding. Psalm 56.3 says, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I'm so glad that God is our shepherd, that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. See, God had told Judah to trust him and no one else. They refused and suffered for it, but God does not forsake his people who forsake him. His promise, his initiative, his imagination, we know from Scripture that one day God will restore the nation. He will set up a kingdom. See, you can trust this God even more than you can trust yourself. So why do we start replacing an awe of God with an awe of self? Because we can absolutely trust God. Going on to the next portion of Scripture, we can stand in awe of God for being all powerful. This is really, he died, Isaiah dives in in this portion, really all the way down through verse 31, the end of the chapter, but I broke it up into paragraphs, sections. Verses 12 through 20, really, we see the power of God. When you think of power, what do you think of? You know, when I think of the, the idea of power, um, I've, 
my son would think of excavators and skid steers and that's what he would think of as we're driving down the road. He's like, gig deer. And, and it actually says it. Um, surprisingly, he can get that word out. Um, or he'll say, excavator. And, and he'll start pointing. And with around here, he's saying it the whole way home. But maybe you're into fitness. I know I, over the last two months, I've, I've dived back into getting myself uh, more fit and in better shape and taking care of my body um, much to my chagrin sometimes. It hurts. But I, remember I was watching Thursday Night Football on Thursday, and they showed a clip of one of the star running backs squatting. And this guy was squatting 675 pounds. A bar over his shoulder, and he literally, I'm not going to squat for you this morning, but it literally did more than one. I mean, the, I don't even know where they found a bar that could hold that much weight. It was like literally this. That's what I think. When I think of power, I think of a guy who can do that. Maybe you are more into, again, the machinery, and, and maybe it's something along the lines of a garbage compactor that, or these things that crush these cars into shreds. Maybe it's the wind turbines. I don't know what it might be for you. But when I think of power, we think of those things, but you know what? There's no power that compares to God. See, God didn't need a bunch of machinery to create the world. He spoke, and it came into existence. That's power. That is power. See, God controls the creation with his words and the entire section here builds the reader to understand without doubt who the creator of the earth is. The God we serve is sovereign, authoritative, all-powerful, all-knowing. This previous, the previous portion here discusses God's glory through the comfort of a Savior who will display God's glory at a level that we can see that, that has never been seen before. And God not only controls creation, but he controls the history of the world. That's power. That's power. So how can we understand God's greatness? One, we ask ourselves, how can we understand this? The questions, if you look at verse 12, it says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And he, he gives a list of questions here through 14. And as Isaiah's writing, he's expecting the Israelites to actually already know the answer to these questions, by the way. It's not like they didn't know the answer to these questions. You know, we know the answer to these questions, and yet we struggle to stand in awe of the answer to those questions. Because the answer to these questions reflect on God's character and his ability to do what he can do. We see his ability that excels beyond everything that is imaginable, that this, our God, our one true God is incomparable. He's incomparable. And we can try to come up with as many humanly possible descriptions of who God is. But at the end of the day, we're going to fall short. In fact, Isaiah in verse 18 says, 
To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? You know, the heathen nations had their false idols. They're false gods that they look to hope for hope from. But nothing can be created that, in, that has the power that God has. And so we see in verses 12 through 20 the greatness of God in providing hope by seeing God greater than the nations and the idols that were in and around Israel. God is greater than America. God is greater than any other nation in the world. And we need to stand in awe of him. God is in control. And we need to live in awe of that and, and, and knowing that and believing it and acting on it. See, God is greater than all nations. And he even adds on to that in verses 21 through 26. He asks some more rhetorical questions again. But he goes specifically into creation. And he lists things about, about creation. You know, I believe, you know, when I think of God's power over creation, it is, is amazing seeing his power in creation. What was it, about a month ago that we had the power outage? <laughs> With all the strong winds that came through? I remember as we were driving home, I had taken Ella and Chloe out to eat over on Hall Road. And we were driving home and they kept looking for the lightning bolts. And they were just being amazed by the power of God in the lightning. And I don't know about you, but it is fun to just sit and look at lightning. I fell in love with it when we lived down in Florida when I was in college because they were the coolest lightning storms ever. You could literally just see them spreading across the sky. It was so clear the lightning was. You say, why were you sitting outside? Because it was fun to watch the lightning. But God's power over creation. The girls thought it was cool. I just recently was playing golf in 40 mile hour winds. You would say, you're crazy. I didn't know that it was going to be 40 mile hour winds. But I remember as it, as it settled down and the storm blew through and and I still have in my, in my mind the, the flag sticks literally bent over like this. And I, I remember as we were finishing up thinking, wow, God is powerful. God is powerful. Let's go to Scripture. Remember when God called on the storm to calm the boat? Sorry, he didn't calm the boat, he calmed the storm. But the boat on the water... I need to check my grammar next time. Or when he caused the Red Sea and the Jordan River to split. Can you just try to picture being there? As Moses obeys God and God uses Moses' obedience and, and the, the, the faith there and, and he answers and the promises and, and all of a sudden you see this sea just go. And they walk around not on mud, but on dry land. Dry land. Jordan River, same thing. It blows my mind that Israel 
at the, still did not look at God with awe and started complaining. But you know what? It doesn't surprise me because we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Isaiah is describing the greatness of God in a way that is that they knew. Are we standing awestruck of God and his creation? I know I've used the illustration before, but when we lived out in Washington, living around the mountains, there were mornings where you just woke up and were like, wow. Wow. It's not just the entire nation he had control over, but he also had control also over the rulers. If you continue to go on towards the end of verse 25 and 26, he asked the question again, verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth hosts by number. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. God is greater. See, what goes on in this world is not surprising to God. God is the one in control. So why do we fret? Why do we worry? Nothing or no one can adequately capture the fullness of God's glory. Then we have verse 4, we stand in awe of God's care for those who are weary. And here, there's actually been a song written, a, chor- a choral song written based on this, and I don't even know, it might actually be in our hymn book. I'm, I'm not sure if it is. But Ron Hamilton, I believe, or Majesty Music, wrote a song based on the end of this, this so- verse, verse 31. That they will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not get tired. What was Isaiah telling Israel here? He was telling them that God cares for those who are weary. Have you ever felt weary? Maybe this morning you feel weary. Stand in awe that God cares for you. Have you ever felt like God is distant from you? God hasn't forgotten about you. Are there times that sin in our life causes us to have a a, a broken relationship, a, a broken fellowship with God? Yeah. And it's in those moments oftentimes that God feels very distant. But he's right there to hear you. To hear you call on him for forgiveness and repentance. He was, Isaiah's writing here, and he says in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. 
And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. You know, sometimes it just means we need to sit there and wait for God. I'm feeling tired today, spiritually. Look, dive into God's word. Stare at awe of who God is and just let God work in your life. Let him change you. Let him grow you. Let him strengthen you. You know, sometimes we try to blame God for, hey God, you don't see what, you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't get it. Or we accuse him of just not being there. Or we think we, we raise our, our thinking to, to the same elevation or we, we lower God's elevation uh, of, of thinking to ours. And, and we think we know better than God and we, we start asking God why. Why, why, why? How did God respond to Job when he just kept asking Why? You know what God said? Look at me. Here's who I am. And he gives Job a ton of questions, all pointing to who God is. God is the answer to everything in your life. And when our view of the world, when the way we view life, our value system is not based on God and is not staring at God and focused on God and living in awe of God constantly, it is there where we start to see ourselves maybe fall spiritually a little bit. It's there where we start to feel maybe disjointed from the church. It is there where we become discontent in our lives. Isaiah was reminding, as one commentator put it, when you behold the greatness of God, then you will see everything else in life in its proper perspective. The two application points to wrap up this morning. First, as we've looked at this text, a very overview of this chapter, but seeing the greatness of God. God and his greatness must be central to our daily living. God must be central. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Our lives are not about us. Unfortunately, we sometimes find ourselves living as functional atheists. Say, so what, what do you mean by that? We just function as without God really being a part of our function. We're not denying that God is there. We're not denying God exists. 
But we're not including God in our day, daily, by day stuff. We're not including him throughout the day. We worry when we should be trusting. We are self-confident when we need to be humble. We're self-promoting when we need to be God-glorifying. We are controlling when we need to be trusting. We are all too often operating with, a replacements, with replacements for God. See, we need to stop operating life without God being the central control to everything we do. We need to follow as God leads and not try to lead ourselves. Our path and direction will only lead to disaster when we are in control. See, every time Christians wander off the path, it hurt, it's going to hurt. It's going to take place through consequences. What's going to happen on that path is there's going to be consequences of sin. There's going to be trials that are self-inflicted. See, selfishness is never going to get you anywhere. Not anywhere that God wants you to be. See, self-grandeur will only result in self-face-planting, and I created that word myself. When you are trying to lift yourself up and you start to think of yourself more than God, you're only going to self-face-plant. Stop reciting your day or a great accomplishment and leaving God out of the story. People ask you how you're doing and God never comes to your mind to let them know what God's been doing in your life. This type of worldview will only bring discomfort and failure. It is not living with a daily awe of God. It is only a constant awe of God, who God is and does, that will propel you to righteous living. We've got to be awestruck of the God that we serve. A practical step in this area is, husbands, wives, before you go to bed each night, I, I challenge you to do this. Before you go to bed tonight, maybe just do it for the week and see, I would encourage you to just do it in, indefinitely. I know I'm going to do it with, with Liz. Each of you write three things from that day where you saw the greatness of God. And how the greatness of God, you saw the greatness of God in your life. Just three things. And talk about them with each other. Parents, start your children thinking the same way by teaching them about the greatness of God during family devotions. And I would even extend that a little bit to grandparents when your grandkids are with you. Take the time to teach them about God's greatness. And then each person individually, similarly, do write down three things or ways that you saw God's greatness that day. And maybe even call up a friend or text a friend and just share with them how you saw God's greatness that day. We all should be able to find three ways that God was great in our day. (laughs) Because God never stops being great. (laughs) 
And you know what you'll find is as you begin to share and write down God's greatness, it will excite you time and time again. And you know what you're going to find yourself doing more and more is just talking about God's greatness naturally. You won't be talking about other things that might, aren't wrong to talk about, but you know what? It'll, it'll start replacing, and you'll start replacing your life with more and more of an awe for who God is. Because Ecclesiastes 12, 13 tells us that it, we need to fear God and keep his commands for this is the whole duty of man. And the second application goes similar with it. But God must be big and not small in your life. What do I mean by this? Well, Colossians 1, 15, verse 18, the end of the verse says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. See, the, the opposite of the first application point is that you just live functionally like God's not there. But the second application, it's not that God's not there. He's just smaller than he really is. He's just smaller than he really is. We diminish God. Christians, will, rather than placing God first, we begin to treat God as uncaring or distant when a loved one passes away or some highly difficult trial arrives in their life. They may be trusting in God, but the God they are trusting is not big and and rather small. And they're really saying, God, you're not big enough to fix my problem. God, you're not big enough to do X. And you fill in the blank. It's not that you're, you're you're operating without God. You're just saying, God, you're not big enough to do this. And you try to assist him. Or you think your way is better. So you're not functioning as, as without God. You're, you're, you're functioning, trying to function at the same level of God. Isaiah, later on in chapter 55, he tells us that for my thoughts, this is God speaking, says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. God's ways and his ways. We aren't going to understand everything that God does. And yes, do we in our humanness, in our, in our sinfulness, in our flesh, do we get frustrated at God when we don't understand? Yes, we do. But it doesn't make it right. See, when we get frustrated at God, we're actually not having an awe of God. We need to stop trying to figure out God's plans And his thinking, no matter how many times your circumstances confuse you, God is still just as much in control. God is big. And ultimately, Job chose throughout his life of trial to not turn against God. Did he question God? He did. But he never turned against God. Think of Daniel and his three friends. They could have stopped having an awe of God, but what did Daniel say in Daniel 1.8? I am resolved 
not to eat of the king's meat. And why was he resolved not to eat of the king's meat? Because as a Jew, he couldn't eat that. He was resolved. His three friends were resolved not to worship Nebuchadnezzar and the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built up. Could they have said, God, where are you when they're in the fiery furnace? Could Daniel have said, where are you, God? You don't make any sense. This doesn't make sense. Why am I, I'm trying to serve you. Why are you letting me be thrown to a bunch of lions? Joseph, sold by his brothers. But yet, what did they all do? They weren't perfect, but we see in what God has given to us in Scripture, they saw God as who God was and is. He was big. And he watched over them. You know, in Matthew 6.33, when we think of living our lives and going back to really how we sometimes bring a dichotomy into our lives and really we don't see God as big and, and we don't see him as great and really we live functionally sometimes without God. Well, Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and what? All these things he's saying, and earlier in the passage, right before this, he's saying, don't worry, don't take thought of tomorrow. Don't take thought of what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. But rather, before you do all of that, think of me. Seek me. I am God. Have an awe of me. Fear me. Obey me. So when you're having anxiety in life, think of God. Don't worry. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked him how to be saved? You know what he really didn't want to do is he really didn't want to give up control over his life, did he? He liked his life too much. When you're struggling with control, think about how big God is. Maybe it's, there's some level of addiction and there's something that, that you just have to have. Asking creation, things that are man-made to do what only God can do to deliver you. There's a variety of things that we struggle with. Maybe it's dissatisfaction. There's dissatisfaction in your life. Life is just not what I want it to be. You could be struggling with an awe problem this morning. Or maybe you're a workaholic. And personal success drives contentment in your life. That's an awe problem. Or maybe you have a fear of man and and you struggle with your personal identity. And so you're seeking identity in man rather than in God. It's an all problem. When God is the center, when God is big in your life, so much of the world's pleasures and comforts no longer carry the same value. When God is big, when we are daily seeing God as great and central to our lives, 
and literally living in awe of who God is. All the other things become so secondary to it. I would challenge you and myself to ask ourselves, why are we not more committed to God's church? Why are we not more committed to God's word? Why are we not committed to gospel living and proclamation like we should? Why are we not more committed to strengthening one another spiritually in the church? Most likely it's because we have an awe problem. There's something else replacing that sense of awe in our lives. Something else that, that in essence is blowing our mind. See, we're not viewing the world that's you this morning and you're struggling with an all problem. When we have all problem, we're not viewing the world or life through God's perspective. We're viewing it through the world's perspective, through our own fleshly desires. Don't let blinders get put on your life where you fail to see the wonder and the greatness of God and stand in awe of him. If you are not humbled and brought low through the text this morning as even a simple reading of it should cause us to pause and evaluate, we need to evaluate where have I failed to just live in awe of the grandest and truest and greatest God. The one true God who has forgiven our sins, bought us from slavery to sin, reconciled us to God, adopted us into his family, justified us and declared us not guilty, filled us with the Holy Spirit, enabled us not to sin, won the victory over sin and eternal separation from God, preparing a room for us in heaven, given us an inheritance in Christ, provides comfort when we are hurting, protects us when in danger, blesses us in our obedience, disciplines us in our sinfulness, provides for our physical nutrition and daily needs, and the list could go on and on and on. This is the God we serve. This is the God that we ought to have an immense awe for. We have got to be living constantly in awe of God. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that this morning our hearts have been challenged from your word. I know you've done a work in my heart, Lord, in studying this passage and and seeing you for who you are. Lord, I pray that this text would, would richly dive into our hearts and our minds, that it would become a part of our lives, that we would genuinely, day after day, live in a, a growing awe of who you are. I pray that as we continue the rest of our service, as we finish this morning and go about our week and come back this evening as well that you would receive all the honor and glory.
In your name we pray, amen.